Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Just as we get started here, Dr. Afsarudin, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested uh, in religious studies, in Islamic studies, and uh, particularly this discussion of uh, jihad? Okay, so um, my interest really in Islamic studies per se began as an undergraduate. So mm -hmm. when I was an undergraduate, and this was at Oberlin College in Ohio, I was actually determined to be an economist and a political scientist to boot. I was very interested in the social sciences. I just thought it was very practical. The, the political mm -hmm. world seemed very interesting. So I enjoyed all my politics courses. At that time, the department was called the Department of Government, and I was very interested in comparative politics. So I took a number of courses, and they were fine. But then someone told me that to be taken credibly as a political scientists, particularly someone who was interested in majoring in the Middle East, you mm -hmm. would have to take economics because, of course, the oil boom was on and you had to understand the politics of oil, right? And in order to do that, you also understand the economics of oil. So I took my first economics course. Guess what? I found out very soon that I was simply not cut out for economics. I just could not mm -hmm. wrap my brain around it. It just seemed so dry. It seemed... Um, somehow divorced almost from reality or from human beings, right? Because it was mm. very mathematical, it was formulaic. Um, it just wasn't for me. So I realized that I probably should not pursue my graduate studies in political science, especially Middle East politics. So that yeah. was kind of a rude awakening. But then I took my first Arabic course at Oberlin. Um, we had a visiting professor from Ohio State who was a very gifted teacher of Arabic. And when he started offering his courses, I thought, you know, I should definitely take this course since I'm interested in the Middle East. And I did and absolutely fell in love with the language. Mm. Um, and my background is Muslim. I am a Muslim. And so I already had a natural interest in Arabic and also a natural interest in Islam. So... I figured, well, you know, maybe this could be for the long haul. Why don't I think mm. of going to graduate school in Arabic and Islamic studies? I love the language. I wanted to keep pursuing learning it. I wanted to read all the great literary works in Arabic and then also learn more as a scholar about the faith that I was born into. So, well, as they say, you know, the rest is history. So I applied for graduate school um, in Arabic and Islamic studies into several Middle Eastern studies departments. And Johns Hopkins was um, you know, a renowned uh, university and had mm -hmm. a very well-regarded professor in Arabic and Islamic studies. So I, um, I applied, I got in, they gave me a very handsome uh, financial aid package and the, the deal Always was- helpful. Yes, that was extremely helpful. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I continued my studies of Arabic and I continued my study of Islam and the, um, the, the you know, the, the Middle East. Mm. And uh, when I got my PhD, I got my first teaching position at Harvard, you know, again, at a very renowned department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. I spent three glorious years there. And I say glorious particularly because not only was it fun to teach these very gifted students, but also because of the resources that were available there. They had an amazing library. That gave me the opportunity to finish up my, or to, to finish up the revisions to my dissertation, my PhD dissertation, prepare that for publication as a book. And mm. practically any book or article that I needed, I could find at Widener Library. So that really sped things up for me. So that placed me in a very good position for my first tenure track position. Um, which I got at the University of Notre Dame after I taught for, at Harvard for three years as a lecturer. That was not a tenure track position, so that was definitely a dead-end position. 
Um, but I was at Notre Dame then for 13 years. I got my tenure there. I wrote my uh, first book there. In fact, actually, I published two books while I was still there. And then Indiana University had um, a senior position in their department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures. So I didn't quite make it out of Indiana, remained a Hoosier. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've been very happy here. Indiana has been a very congenial academic home, uh, great mm. colleagues and so forth. So, yeah, that's sort of my uh, academic life in a nutshell. Oh, that's awesome. I actually lived for five years about a mile from Notre Dame uh, when I was, uh, oh, when I was you? younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Where was it's, that? It's, uh, I'm, I'm sorry? Which city was it? Was it Elkhart or? Um, South Bend. Goshen? No, I mean, we were, you oh, know, you Ironwood Drive. Bend. Yeah, you know Ironwood oh, yes, Drive that like leads. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we lived on Ironwood yeah. Drive. Yeah, oh, you <laughs> so we yeah, could hear. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, we could hear the pep band practice at night. So uh, fond <laughs> memories of you know uh, people. I don't That's think right. people know. Right. Yeah, I think it's the oldest marching band, uh, Notre Dame. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's so, funny. I, actually, that's one thing I do not miss the football weekends because we live fairly <laughs> close to the campus. And yes. so any weekend they had a game, we could not venture out of our home. You yeah. know, we just have to shutter ourselves and then wait till the next day to do all our chores for the weekend. Yes. So, yeah. It was football that's or nothing. Yeah. You either enjoyed the football or you, you bared with it. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's right. <laughs> bore with it. Bore with it. The, um, so, uh, today we're talking about, and I have it here, uh, striving in the path of God. I did not get the dust jacket, which made me sad, but um, really interesting work. Uh, loved what I, I've been able to get into. Uh, how did you get interested, uh, especially about uh, jihad and the, this concept? And even it looks like you're kind of, uh, as I'm looking at it, reclaiming the, some of the complexities of the, of the concept of jihad. That's right. Well, actually, 9-11 had a lot to do with it. So mm. after September 11, as you might imagine, there was um, a lot of talk about terrorism, militancy, and inevitably, the way the media played it up, they almost always associated with Islam and Muslims, right? Um, so it got to the point where you realize that all we were getting was this kind of unadulterated, monolithic view of Islam as a very violent religion. And Muslims, because they practice jihad, and most of the people didn't even know what that Arabic term meant, but jihad became a very scary word and people reflexively associated with militancy, with violence, mm -hmm. especially violence directed against Westerners, right? That somehow Islam was unable to coexist peacefully with other religions and Muslims are incapable of living as peaceful citizens in the West um, outside of the Islamic heartlands. So, um, of course, already as someone who was quite familiar with Islamic history. I just knew that this was a very skewed picture, not just me, but many of my colleagues. We were constantly being asked to appear in front of television cameras. I was kept very busy in South Bend, by the way. Um, I was pretty much known as kind of the lone Muslim expert on things Islamic. So whenever they needed a commentator on one of their shows, guess who called up, who, who they yes. called up. Um, yes. After, you know, I was terrified at first. But then I kind of got used to the idea. And also I told myself, if I didn't do it, if I did not step up to mm. the plate, there are a number of very ignorant people who'd be happy to do it for me. And they would simply yes. perpetuate, right? The same stereotypes and the same um, misconceptions and so forth. And then I thought to myself, well, you know, I am looking around for a second topic, um, a topic mm. for a second book. Why not this? This is about as topical as you can get. It's very timely. Yeah. And also it would be a learning process for me. Uh, although I knew, you know, sort of the broad contours of what jihad meant and, and historically what has, you know, what has been the different, the different meanings and significances of the term, I actually did not, had not carried out a sustained scholarly historical study of the term and um, you know, the, the relevant literature. So I thought, mm -hmm. well, there has never been a better time to start doing that now. Um, so I actually wrote a proposal and I submitted to a number of granting agencies to see if they, you know, I could get a major grant that would allow me to go on sabbatical for a year and start the research for the book. I mean, this was a huge venture. We're talking about 
so many different genres of literature that I, w- I would have to look at. Obviously, yeah. religious texts, but also literary texts, historical texts, legal texts, and so forth. Um, and fortunately, I did get um, a, a very generous grant from the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation, which allowed me to go mm-hmm. on leave for a whole year. So I started the research for that. Now, that year was spent only in reading texts. I mean, this is a big topic, <laughs> right? So that's yeah. all I did for most of the year, reading, taking notes, collecting my thoughts, trying to see you know, where all this would lead me to. So a couple of years later, I applied for another major grant, got it. And this was the year when I was finally able to sit down and write the book. Well, the book came out in 2013. So now I forget the exact year, but I think I was on leave from um, 2007 to 2008. I may be getting the years a little wrong, but when the book finally came out in 2013, I had been actually working on this project for about eight years. And that's how long Mm -hmm. it took me to digest all this information, right? Because there's such a wealth of material. so yeah, so uh, September 11 sort of proved to be the, the stimulant for um, uh, my getting interested in the topic. And then the long gestation process, you know, during which I uh, conceived of the, the plan for the book and the actual writing. And finally, it seemed the light of day in 2013. I have to confess that I wrote this as a scholarly book for specialists, but I've also been pleased by the reaction from non-specialists who said, you know, um, if they can avoid a lot of the uh, getting, you know, bogged down in a lot of the Arabic terms. And I think this is also a challenge for you if you don't know Arabic, uh, and uh, most people don't, um, even academics don't. But if you can sort of skim past that, I think you would be able to get sort of the larger uh, ideas that I'm proposing in the book. And the, um, as, as you said, restoring kind of the complexity to this topic and not just reduce the complexity of this topic to a soundbite or two, right? Which is, sort of, which is what we get from the media. Yes, uh, for just about everything, but especially for yeah. like a topic like this that deserves a complex treatment. Um, yeah. I, I just want to say, you know, as I was able to get into it, um, I actually really appreciate it. I, I come from a religious studies background and I, I went into hermeneutics for, uh, yes. for the Bible. And so I, a lot of the exegetical passages you have are very familiar from a Greek standpoint. Like I, I was like, it, it actually felt very, like, I was like, oh, this is, yeah. this is, I feel at home here, you know? Um, uh, and so I, and I appreciate that kind of linguistic work and the, the rigor that goes into that and the way that it grounds a lot of these arguments. Um, one thing that I yeah. found, and this is just an example of the, the way that, you know, you talk about the dominant juridical uh, and political mm-hmm. uh, formation of the concept of jihad, that it's primarily political, that sort of thing. Um, I'd always heard uh, jihad um, translated as holy war. But in here, you talk about when you look at the, the literal translation is striving in the path of God, which, of course, is completely different, right? Like, it's not completely different, but it's like, like, that's very, very different. And you could immediately see how you could use that in multiple ways. Um, even the way you yeah. talked about um, uh, martyrdom and the, and the translation of that from Arabic is uh, dying in the path of God, which, it, again, is... That, that opens up a, a multitude of interpretations. And uh, I, I personally find a lot of value in reclaiming what we have rather than just trying to immediately cut off and distance ourselves. A lot of times when we do that, we create, I think, holes in ourselves and we often are bound to repeat certain issues instead of growing from the roots that, the healthy roots that we're given. Um, so kind of... Uh, you know, with, with that said, with those, those kind of simple, like the simple things that I picked up, what are some common misconceptions that you often see with jihad? And how would you, um, in a more complex way, define jihad or talk about its different uses? Mm-hmm. Well, as you pointed out yourself, that one of the takeaways from the book, at least I hope that is a principal takeaway for most readers, is that jihad actually in its basic meaning means striving struggling, hmm. making an effort, usually towards a good end, right? 
But in general, the basic dictionary sense of the word jihad is struggle. And when you broaden the meaning that way, when you go back to the fundamentals, then you realize this is something that almost anyone can identify with. We're talking about human struggle at all levels, in all spheres of life. The fact that I'm struggling now to find the right words to convey my thoughts to you, that's part <laughs> of jihad. The fact that you're yeah. struggling yeah. to convey your, you know, your understanding of the book to me, that's part of your jihad too. I sometimes remind my uh, Christian students when I was at Notre Dame in particular, as you might imagine, we had many observant Catholic students. I would remind them that in the Arabic translation uh, of the Bible, when they talk about jihad, uh, I'm sorry, when they talk about Jesus struggling with himself, they use the word jihad. Mm. And that really? might come as a trouble to some Christians because they'll think, oh, no, 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 jihad is only something that Muslims do and it's not a good thing. But that's, that's all it is, primarily. Mm. That, you know, it, it simply refers to the struggle of every human being to achieve their full potential in life. There is a fundamental moral imperative within Islam, which can, which can be distilled into uh, a phrase, which states that a Muslim should always command what is good, enjoin what is good, and forbid or prevent what is wrong. Now, in order to do that in all aspects of life, you have to carry out a struggle, right? So the struggle begins with you, your inner struggle. We are all assailed by all kinds of desires, base desires, our impulse to lie, to cheat, to break our promises, all that, right? So the fundamental struggle is within yourself. How can you be a better person by fighting these base desires within yourself, you know, which prompts you to do certain things that are bad, huh? that you should resist as a moral, as a righteous person, right? That's the fundamental definition of struggle. But then there's also a social aspect to it. How can you prevent other people from doing wrong things? How can you prevent them from uh, doing wrong to their neighbors, right? Um, a ruler. There's a very famous hadith, a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, which says, one of the best forms of jihad is to speak a word of truth to a tyrant. And we often describe mm -hmm. that as speaking truth to power. Not an easy thing to do. We often have to struggle to, to carry out that command, right? To speak the truth fearlessly, regardless of what the consequences might be for us. It's probably one of the hardest moral and ethical imperatives for us to live up to, right? So um, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about many different dimensions of jihad. Now, at the state level, what happens if you're attacked by an aggressor, an enemy, who wants to take control of your land, uh, pillage your property, right? Lay waste to your, your, your home and so forth. Of course, under those circumstances, your struggle to fend off the attack and protect yourself, defend yourself, is also part of jihad. So there's also a military aspect to it, especially when the state is involved. One thing that you never pick up right. from the media is that there is actually a whole protocol for a state to declare uh, war against an aggressor nation. It's always the legitimate head of state who can proclaim such a call to arms. Only the legitimate head of state. So you can't have you know, every, like I like to say to my students, you can't have every Tom, Dick, and Ali proclaiming a military <laughs> jihad, right? It has to be the recognized head of state. And uh, I'm, I have a feeling you're familiar with the, the Christian just war theory, where there's an equal emphasis yeah. on how it's the, the, the legitimate ruler, the one who is recognized by the citizenry as the legitimate ruler. Only that person can declare war, right? So that's also a fundamental precept within um, uh, military ethics within Islam. So, of course, this is a big, to big topic, big subject, as you know, because uh, you know I talk about uh, many of these different dimensions in the book. But in a in a nutshell, to summarize that, jihad, simply broadly speaking, means struggle on all levels and all spheres of life for a worthy and just cause. And it can be as simple as smiling at your neighbor. And that's your good deed for the day. The struggle to smile at our neighbor, but we may not feel like it, right? Yeah. Uh, the struggle yeah. to say a kind word. Um, the effort we have to put into uh, 
you know, doing something, going an extra mile for someone and carrying out an act of charity, you know, going over to the food bank and making a delivery of, of uh, cans of food that the poor need. All that falls under the rubric of jihad. And I think that's something that everyone uh, ultimately agrees with. It's not easy to be a good person. If it was, everyone, like almost everyone would be, right? <laughs> like it takes effort, right? Yes. Um, and so I, I think that that makes intuitive sense. Uh, something, and I, I just want to, it's just the example that you gave. And so I just want to make sure um, and want to clarify something. You talked about in the social setting, stopping evil as part of the struggle would, uh, yeah. and that's obviously like a, a negative emphasis. Is that uh, generally true of jihad or is it also, um, could producing good in your neighbor also be part of that struggle? Is there also that positive sure. side to it as well? Well, that's why I said that the moral imperative behind the, the whole impetus for jihad on all levels um, is the command that one must promote what is good and prevent or forbid what is wrong. So it's, it's, it's really a two-pronged thing, right? I mean, you can't yes. really have one without the other when you think about it. If you're trying to promote good and someone's trying to resist that, then it's also yes. part of your jihad to, uh, to to facilitate the, 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 the promotion of good, right? Whatever that may right. be. Um, yes. It may be running for office, public office, and therefore making sure that the community has a representative who represents their concerns, right? It may be mm. uh, you know, as, as public as that, or it may be at, on a much more modest level, um, just reprimanding something for trying to do something bad. That would be part of jihad. Or speaking a soft mm. word to allay someone's anger. Uh, you know, there can be so many different ways of promoting right. what is good. Yeah. And it, it's all situational, right? There is no formula or magic formula or prescription. People have to still exercise their intellect. Uh, and they need to be morally formed as human beings so that they know the difference between good and wrong, and then acting on that knowledge to carry out this, this moral imperative. So yeah, there's yeah, both I, the positive I, I, aspect, and then also, as you said, there's also the, um, the, the prevention of doing wrong, which may require, again, sometimes physical means of doing that. Right. Well, and that, that makes sense, right? If, even if you were just negative, I mean, that's a very empty life. You just, I'm just going to stop right. evil, but I'm not going to promote what is good. That's not, right, right, that's not right. good. Um, and that's what I, I figured. I just wanted to clarify um, right. something uh, that you mentioned about the, the proper protocol that you have to have the, the head of state. Where is mm -hmm. that found? Because one of the more interesting things that you mentioned in your book is the assessment, um, kind of the definitions of the authority of Hadith and the assessment of, the, of, of that authority. And, right. Is that where the protocol for the, the head of state is found? Where, where is that protocol found? So the protocol was actually developed more by jurists. Okay. Okay. Um, but then people also point back to the life of the prophet himself. So there are um, the two most authoritative sources for um, legislation, but also for ethical and moral reasoning are, first of all, of course, the Quran, which Muslims believe to be the the sacred revelation, divine revelation within Islam, vouchsafed to the Prophet Muhammad. And then secondly, the Sunnah, S-U-N-N-A, uh, to use a scary Arabic word, uh, which refers to the practices and sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. So the Quran has many broad moral injunctions and principles. Some of the interpretations of those broad moral injunctions and principles are to be found in the Hadith literature where the Prophet himself pronounced on the meanings of some of these verses, right? The, as you know, from your own background in hermeneutics, that um, there can be multiple interpretations of a single verse in scripture, right? Uh, people right. often bring their own lenses to it. I mean, you know, there are also verses with, of course, um, obvious common sense meanings and, and can be taken literally, but there are also a number of statements. Let's just say, um, for example, the command within the Quran and within Islam, be just, always be just, stand up for justice. The Quran proclaims very uh, explicitly, right? And it's reflected in the hadith, you know, the, the sayings of the prophet, 
in, in the, inter, um, the uh, exegetical literature and so forth. But we're not off all of one mind on what constitutes justice. And also the concept changes from time to time, from place to place, right? Uh, and it all depends on where you are located, right? So this is where the exegesis of these critical verses become extremely important. So the jurists went to great length. They knew that, of course, when the prophet eventually received divine permission to engage the pagan Meccans in battle, you know, because they had aggressed against the Muslims and had committed acts of persecution against them for 12 years of his prophetic career, uh, Muhammad was not given the permission to uh, engage in armed combat with hmm. uh, his enemies in Mecca, right? It was only after he made the emigration to Medina, then the prophet received divine permission to finally engage in defensive warfare. Um, so they have the model of the prophet to point to, that here we have a recognized head of state of his own community, and therefore the legitimate ruler who is able to then uh, give the call to armed combat, right? And so the, the jurists not only studied the Quran and the Hadith, but they also studied the life of the prophet and therefore drew examples, precedents from his life. And therefore the detailed protocol that they eventually did lay out in their writings about military ethics and how to go to war included uh, this very uh, basic condition that only the legitimate uh, head of state recognized as such by the majority Muslims could issue such a call. And then there were very strict protocols about how to behave during warfare, right? There was a strict mm. military code of conduct. You could not ever target non-combatants. Civilians automatically had immunity, right? Non-combatant immunity, something that we have enshrined in modern uh, international law, right? The Geneva Conventions protects the rights of civilians. Uh, it also, within Islamic law, they also made provisions for treat, humane treatment of prisoners of war, something we also mm. find reflected in modern international law. So we do find rules pertaining to military protocol and the, um, you know, principles of non-combatant immunity uh, and the requirement that only the legitimate ruler should uh, engage in warfare, uh, they have been codified in these legal manuals that exist until today. Is that, and, and forgive me, uh, when, when we talk about Hadith, what is Hadith? Is it those legal manuals? Yeah, uh, no, no. Okay, so let me make a distinction between Hadith and legal manuals. Hadith are okay. the actual sayings of the Prophet, right? And okay. the, the sayings of the Prophet are always kept distinct from the Quran. So Muslims believe the Quran is direct divine revelation to the Prophet. Got it. The Hadith are his sayings, Muhammad's sayings that are not considered divine in origin. They're his own sayings. And then the legal uh, material developed later when there came into being a class of jurists who studied these sources, the Quran and the Hadith. The Hadith is almost always interchangeably used with Sunnah, but Sunnah also refers to the actions of the prophets. The hadith are the same, yes. but the Sunnah also refers to what, he, what did he actually do that was not necessarily codified into a statement, right? So Hadith and Sunnah are often used interchangeably. So the, the jurists then studied these two sources because by the second or third century of Islam, um, Islam had become a world civilization practically, right? I mean, you've heard about the Abbasid period, the glorious period, the flowering of Islamic civilization. That actually forms the backdrop, by the way, to the Arabian Nights. When you read the Arabian Nights, they're talking about the Abbasid period, right? The, if you take out the fantastical tales, no, no one was riding around in magic carpets, of course. Uh, that just didn't happen. That's just fictional. It's always a disappointment, <laughs> but <believe> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that is sort of the the um, the age of prosperity that forms the backdrop to the Arabian Nights, and the reason for that is it it actually became uh, one of the most prominent civilizations of that time, and 
Um, there are schools and universities cropping up all over the, uh, the Islamic world, science and uh, architecture and technology was at a very advanced stage by the standards of the time uh, in the yeah. third, fourth, fifth centuries of Islam, which corresponds to 9th, 10th, 11th centuries of the, uh, the Christian era. Um, Thank you. I was going to ask. I apologize but I, to keep that straight no, no, in my no, head. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, I am so used to doing that, doing the double dating. Um, <laughs> so to go back to the jurists. So the jurists mm -hmm. then, uh, Islamic jurisprudence actually then really took off. There was so much learning and part of the learning was also religious learning. And so the jurists, having now uh, inherited this, this growing civilization, had to deal with situations that were not adequately uh, explained either in the Quran or the Hadith and the Sunnah. So there were, of course, broad moral principles and injunctions, but those had to be parsed, right, in response to new circumstances on the ground. So now that Islam had become this world power, uh, world civilization, how, did you how do you deal with people uh, that Muslims came across, often conquered as populations, um, how do you deal with these citizens, right? How do you deal with their rights? What do you do when you engage people in warfare, an army in a warfare, but they are in the middle of non-combatants, in, in the middle of civilians? How do you deal with them? Mm. So they do refer to hadiths like the famous one uh, where um, the prophet counsels one of his generals when conducting warfare to absolutely make sure that women, children, the elderly were never targeted because that mm -hmm. would actually be a grievous sin, right? It would be a mm -hmm. grievous wrong. Uh, yes. So we have um, pointed explicit commands coming from the prophet himself that forbids attacking civilians under any conditions. But the jurists also had to go beyond that. There were certain situations that simply, there simply was no precedent for in the existing literature, right? So they used what's known as in Arabic, I'm gonna throw out another scary Arabic word, ijtihad. They're independent reasoning. Jurors also had to fall back on their own reasoning in order to derive new rulings under new circumstances, right? One principle that was often invoked by them was the principle of the common good. Again, that should sound familiar to you. I think the notion of the common good, right? The, the general welfare of people is often a motivating factor behind new legislation. How could the jurists derive new legislation that again, promoted what is good and prevented what is wrong? What is the common good that they are after? Again, perceptions of common good can change with age. So what may have struck uh, our predecessors as part of the common good in the ninth century of the common era would not strike us the same way. I mean, think about the situation of women, for example, right? I mean, how drastically our notions of what constitutes gender justice, how drastically that has changed since the pre-modern period, right? Um, certain things that were taken for granted as being just and humane with regards to women, we were no longer considered being equally just and humane in the modern period, right? Uh, the idea that women cannot go out to work or they should not have access to higher education because their true calling was as mothers and wives. There's nothing wrong with being mothers and wives. But within Islam, women and men are actually uh, supposed to be granted the same opportunities to fulfill themselves, to flourish as human beings. And I think across the board, many religions have actually made that transition where they, they also understand um, what constitutes justice within gendered relations to have changed drastically since the pre-modern period, right? So we do evolve. We don't lose sight of our basic principles, but we do evolve in how we understand those principles in any given period or in any given situation. So the jurors were often reacting to the reality on the ground. So realpolitik, Realism, hard-headed political realism often guided what they did. Now, sometimes in the course of doing that, they did sometimes turn away from prophetic precedent. I do see that in the literature. Hmm. And sometimes the motivation for that is 
we have to defend ourselves under all circumstances. So that means sometimes we have to carry out a military attack, even when we know that women and children are in the midst of the, you know, the attacking forces. What do you do? So a greater good can trump a lesser evil. Okay, so unfortunately in war, sometimes you have to make those very, very unpalatable choices, but those choices have to be made. So what's interesting about the legal manual is, is you see an evolving legal discourse that's not always religiously based, not always textually based, but they are reacting to the situation on the ground and they are working as hard-headed, pragmatic jurists, as jurists are often called upon to do so, right? So we often have to remember, many of the pronouncements were contingent. They were not meant to be valid for all time and place. Unfortunately, I think there are a number of Muslims who think that whatever the jurist pronounced on in the 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th century is still binding today, even though the circumstances of our world have changed so much, right? And mm-hmm. this is where I think the dynamism of a continuing um, uh, evolving Islamic thinking on a number of these issues comes into play. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I wanted to address, you, you said at the beginning that you had to read quite a bit uh, in the literature. Was that uh, almost exclusively juridical literature? Or uh, is there uses of jihad that are outside uh, the, yeah, yeah. the juridical? What, what, is it, what is jihad like outside of the juridical literature? Right. So actually, in the book, I don't discuss the juridical literature because that has been oh, okay. cited to death. And because people <laughs> have focused only on the legal literature, right. uh, they keep promoting the same views. But we have to remind ourselves that those are sometimes the views only of those jurists. They're not necessarily reflecting the tradition as a whole. So I'm very glad you, that you asked me this question because for the ordinary person, jihad has nothing to do with fighting or with military. Uh, activity, right? Jihad for them, what we began our conversation with is whatever needs to be done at the daily level, right? The daily grind, if you like. Getting up in the morning to go to work, that's part of your jihad. In fact, there are wonderful hadiths that talk about that every time a person embarks on licit means of earning a living, licit, that person earns a reward for carrying out a legitimate jihad. And they're described as being on the path of God, you know, that we talked about how true, a true struggle is always for the sake of God, right? Um, so such a person is on the path of God. And this is always good news for my students. So I always tell them that anyone who embarks on learning and undergoes hardship to acquire an education, that person has carried out jihad as well, right? And I tell my students, hey, you know, you're getting up in the morning, having a quick breakfast and coming to my class was not in vain. You, you are carrying mm-hmm. out jihad and you will reap the benefits of this. And I remember one student of mine from rural Indiana, suddenly a light went off in his head and he said, you mean every time my father gets up and goes to work, he's carrying out jihad? And I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I said, are you going to tell your father that? He said, no way. He said, no, my father would be absolutely taken aback and probably shocked if I described his, you know, his, his right. daily grind in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So for the uh, ordinary person, yeah, it's really about, you know, carrying out your daily activities and doing it for a, a good, you know, every sacrifice you make for your family, for example, is part of this larger moral imperative of promoting what is good and, you know, and therefore preventing what is wrong and so forth. Yeah, it's part of your basic jihad. Yeah, I, I can't get past this idea that you you mentioned that people are only studying the juridical literature and so they always come up with the same views. Yeah. And I was just thinking if two to 500 years from now, you know, if people judged uh, the American culture purely on what lawyers wrote, I think the rest of us would be very frustrated. <laughs> like, no, no, there's so much more. To be to like America as it is right now than just what lawyers think, right? Like that's a very different, a very specific kind of discourse. I think that's very, very helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. And also if you read only official literature, right? Literature produced by public officials. What about the lives of daily, you know, the ordinary lives of citizens, the the ordinary citizen, you know, what did these concepts mean to them? So I think Mm. a number of us have started 
weaning ourselves from the legal literature and looking at other sources for producing a more holistic idea of what jihad is. Um, the spiritual aspects of jihad is extremely important. Now, you don't have to be a mystic to practice spiritual jihad, which is sometimes what people think. You don't have to withdraw from life and so forth. No, I mean, spiritual aspects, again, as I said, you know, curbing my desire to speak a sharp word to someone or say an unkind word to someone or backbite or lie or, you know, all that. Um, you know, my again, my struggle to curb those impulses is, again, part of my daily internal spiritual jihad. And we all carry out all the time, right? So mm -hmm. that is, of course, an extremely important part of uh, understanding what jihad means. Um, there's also the social aspects of jihad. Let's say you're fighting to, um, ret uh, you know, to um, prevent climate change, right? Mm -hmm. This is a really important concern for us. Uh, this is promoting the common good. You know, once yeah. you, if, if our natural resources disappear, you and I are not going to be in very good shape, but particularly our children and grandchildren. Think of that. Right. What kind right. of a world are we going to bequeath to them, right? So being concerned about social issues like that and fighting for social justice, you know, um, promoting civil rights, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, was one of those really important social justice movements in recent history that I can think of that in some ways has created a sea change in our consciousness. Suddenly we are aware of, hmm. you know, there's so many injustices simmering just beneath the surface and we tend to ignore them until it erupts, right? Um, but we really, really can't wait that much longer. These are concerns that we need to be engaged with and address right now. That's part of, again, uh, social jihad and trying to reform society, uh, creating a movement for the greater good, all that, again, is part of jihad. Uh, so uh, you've mentioned kind of the, the daily uh, jihad. Is there, is, and the spiritual side, is there anything from an arts perspective, like in the, in the literature, and in a literary sense, or in uh, paintings or sculptures where you see representations of jihad? And what, is, what is, can we learn from that? Hmm. I'm not sure I can actually point to any artistic representations of jihad. I mean, because how do you represent a concept? Um, mm. But one concept that's very important within um, the Islamic milieu is that of beauty. And we often mm. don't hear that spoken of very much in the context of Islam and Muslims, certainly not in the media, I think. Um, but there's a very famous saying that God is beauty and therefore mm. he loves beauty. So anything, again, that um, creates aesthetic pleasure would definitely, and, and the effort to create that aesthetic pleasure would actually, of course, be considered part of jihad as well. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and forgive me, the uh, Arabic term escapes me. Uh, very closely linked to all of this discussion is the discussion. It's the it's translated as martyrdom in English, but even as you know the, the idea of dying in the path of God, I, it seems like martyrdom has slightly different connotations from that. Even to translate it over into English, can you talk a little bit about um, and for, again I can't remember the Arabic term, but the way yeah. that that has played throughout the literature. So actually, I think the Arabic word you're thinking of is shahid. Uh, yes. which is usually used to refer to a martyr now. But shahid is used in the Quran uh, completely differently. It does not mean a martyr in the Quran. It means a witness, simply hmm. a witness, either an eyewitness or a legal witness. And God is also described as one who witnesses, right? It's only in the extra-Quranic literature that we find shahid then being translated as a martyr, and, uh, you know, as you remember from the book, you can achieve martyrdom in a number of different ways. Of course, nowadays, if you think of martyrdom in the context of Islam, immediately we think of um, battlefield martyrs, right? Dying mm -hmm. in uh, war, during, dying during a battle. But shahid is actually a much broader term uh, outside of the Quran. In the Quran, it's strictly a witness. But then we also find the word occurring in the Hadith literature and referring to uh, anyone who dies say, through great suffering. So if you die from the plague, that might be good news to certain people who uh, may have perished um, 
at least the loved ones of those who have perished during uh, COVID. Uh, if you die from the plague, if you die from you know some other deadly disease and you suffer a lot in the course of that. Uh, women who die in labor during childbirth are also considered martyrs. Um, so martyrdom does not intrinsically have any violent um, uh, connotations attached to it. It really refers to someone uh, who may die from great suffering. Um, but the broadest definition of a martyr comes from the Hadith literature, and it talks and it says, anyone who dies in their bed is a martyr. What does that mean? It means any righteous person who's lived a life of commitment, of, of righteousness, of, of, of uh, adhering to moral principles, at the end of such a person's life, he or she has achieved martyrdom. That's the broadest definition. Huh? That, so that can refer to anybody who's lived an exemplary life. But the, the, the further message in that is that it's really up to God, however, to determine. Because, I mean, we may see someone passing away, but we have no way of determining whether that person had left, led a righteous life and so forth, right? That is really God's prerogative alone. Only he can judge, right, whether we whether we um, have attained genuine martyrdom in that sense. But the broad definition is the one that I actually like to draw people's attention to. It's not the manner of dying. It's not how you die. It's who you are when you die that determines whether you're a true martyr or not. And again, but that judgment is God's prerogative alone. So the concept as it works... Um seems to be more of an internal motivation, you know, to maybe perhaps make it more universal, but just like, I think everyone can understand the idea of finishing strong, right? There's, there are a few things sadder than someone who lives a righteous life and then blows it at the end, you know, uh, who, um, a man who's lived faithfully for 20 years and then takes a bribe, for instance, you know, like this idea of finishing to the end, right? Like everyone ends in death and to, to, to end well, I mean, that goes even, you can look at Stoic literature. Like, I mean, this, this transcends, like, that's a common human experience. Um, and it's funny, even as you mentioned it, I realized that uh, as, as we talked about Shahid, um, the, the original meaning of martyr was witness as well. A that's why it's, it's translated yeah, that yeah. way. Like, well, it's yeah. the, it was that idea of someone who witnessed, bore yeah. witness to the faith, right? Yeah. Which would make sense. And, but what's happened even in, uh, is that it? The word martyr. It's not so much that it probably is a good translation of shahid. It's that both of them together have been brought up into uh, yeah. media in unhealthy ways yeah. Um, yeah. or lopsided ways. Maybe would be a better mm-hmm. <laughs> very yes. lopsided. Which yeah. it's always a shock when the media does that. But um, <laughs> uh, anyways, um, awesome. I I want to make sure that I am. Um, uh, rep- respectful of your time, is there uh, is there any last thing that you would uh, that you want to talk about in regards to your book? Yeah, um, uh, before we before we conclude. So, will you allow me a shameless plug for my newest book? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay, and so actually, Peter, you may actually find this useful too. Um, yes, because it's called Jihad. Can you see it? Jihad: What Everyone yes. Needs to Know. It just fell off the press uh, a couple of months ago, also published by Oxford University Press. So um, I had written to my editor at Oxford and complained that the book wasn't selling well. (laughs) Well, what do you expect, right? It's so dense, I admit it. It's extremely expensive. (laughs) And so of course, you know, people aren't exactly flocking to buy it, right? and the language is, in many ways, inaccessible, I think, to the ordinary reader. So my editor suggested that I wanted to take a lot of that information that's in the book mm-hmm. and repackage it and write it in more accessible uh, language and produce a shorter book that might be of greater appeal to the lay reader in the sense that, you know, an educated reader, of course, but a non-specialist, right? So I would like to draw people's attention to this book. They might find Striving in the Path of God perhaps a little intimidating, but this might be more up their alley. 
Uh, and well, we'll I'm still put a link to hoping it to attract her attention. Pardon me? Pardon uh, me? We'll definitely, put it, we'll definitely put a link to it in the description. That, yes. the, I, I, that, yeah, I will yeah. say, it was <laughs> Striving the Path of God was not an easy read. So that's actually, that's encouraging. I think uh, more people would, yeah, that's would exactly find that attractive. What I mean. yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's a, in a question um, and answer, it's in a question and answer format. So I try to anticipate questions that the average reader might ask and then mm. answer that using, again, a lot of my sources, but repackaging them differently so that it's, it's you know, much more digestible. Yeah, awesome. Um, so kind of as we conclude here, and, and thank you for plugging that book. I didn't realize that that had just come out. That's awesome. Um, but as we conclude here, what's one thing that you'd want to leave to our listeners? You know, make the effort. Can I use the word effort again? I guess make the jihad, um, to learn on your own. I mean, sure. You know, you control the internet and you can find a lot of websites. Um, it's something that I warn my students against considerably, but don't forget the, um, the art of reading, uh, Mm. pick up something, you know, that's reliable. Uh, try to get a holistic view of things. Don't get bogged down in sort of the, you know, the media soundbite that can often mislead. I'm not saying that the media sometimes doesn't try to do its best, but it's very restrict, restricted in what it can do. There is no substitute for um, a detailed and uh, in-depth exposure to a subject. So don't take the shortcut um, do read my book, Striving in the Path of God, and then, you know, read the kind of the companion volume, Jihad, What Everyone Needs to Know. And I think by using the two sources, you would get a very good sense of, you know, how complex the notion of jihad is, but at the same time, also a very simple notion in the sense that, you know, this is something we're already doing, we're already all carrying out. Um, we don't call it that in our lives, but it is a concept that all of us can relate to at a very basic human level. So if, as I said at the very beginning of her interview too, if the major takeaway from the book and this conversation today is that, oh, now I understand jihad, I can relate to it. It's not scary. It's not about violence and fighting people. It's about trying to make a more meaningful existence for all of us. We're all in this together. And that the struggle to create a better world is our common struggle, and dare I say it, our common jihad. And so that's, hmm. that's really what I would like the, the reader and the listener to get from my discussion. Uh, really an awesome way to end. Uh, Dr. Afsaruddin, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much.